0: Thanks for that reading, Eric. Uh, Let me add my welcome to Matt's. My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you with us, especially if you are new. Uh, We're working through Luke 10 to 12, as you heard, and um, tonight we come to this passage, a well-known passage, um, that addresses uh, the Lord's Prayer, amongst other things. Before I pray and ask that God will help us as we look at his word together, just one further notice on top of the announcements that have already been made. Uh, Many of you here know Grace Jones and Chris Rothwell well, and you heard them interviewed a couple of weeks ago about the ministry intern roles that they've taken up this year. Uh, We just want to offer a a quick plug again uh, today. If people are considering um, or able to consider supporting them financially, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, They're still continuing to fundraise for this year. Our church pays about a quarter uh, of their three-day wage for the year, but the rest they need to fundraise. So... Um, If that's something that God's putting in your heart then please uh, speak with them or speak with one of the pastors. We'd love to hear from you. Let me pray for us and ask that God will help us uh, as we come to this passage together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father we do thank you uh, that we can gather here tonight. We thank you that in your wonderful grace to us you have given us your word which is living and active and we pray that tonight as we Study it together, that we might hear your voice clearly, that we may respond uh, with faith. Help us to not only hear your words, but have hearts that are ready to respond, uh, wills that will put your word into action. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in an article a few years ago, which was entitled, The Disease of Being Too Busy, uh, the writer relayed a conversation that he had had with a parent. Uh, this was a family living in the United States, and uh, about 10 years ago they'd moved to the area of North Carolina. And they'd found it a really friendly neighbourhood with lots of young families which matched them, and so they were looking forward to settling in. And they went and spoke to one of the friendly neighbours next door pretty early on in the first few days and said, look, we'd love our daughter to be able to catch up with your daughter's um, can we arrange a time when they might play together?" To which the mother responded by pulling out her phone and scrolling and, and scrolling and scrolling. And then eventually she turned to them and said, "'Well, my daughter has a 45-minute window "'in two and a half weeks. "'Would that suit you? "'She's just really busy at the moment. "'She's got voice lesson, piano lessons and gymnastics. "'There's just not a lot of space. And the writer's response to that as he reflected on it was, how is it that we've come to this point in our world that we live like this? Why do we make our children live like this? What happened to a world where we may slowly sit down and chat with those we love the most, unaffected by time limits, where we might unfold conversations where there are lots of pregnant pauses, where there are lots of silences that we don't need to rush and feel, where we can really hear somebody's heart and respond to them? How do we create a world in which we have more and more to do with less and less time for reflection, less time for community, less time to just be? But I want to ask you, is there an even greater problem that our busyness produces? What does it do in terms of our spiritual walk, our relationship with God, if we've come to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour? What challenges does that present? You know, with our frantic lifestyles, our independence, our self-sufficiency, our distraction... The big question I want us to consider from the passage we're going to consider tonight is this, how can we express our dependence on God? In the midst of all this noise and distraction, are we able to hear God's voice, respond to him, to truly depend on him as we should? How can we express our dependence on God? Three answers to that question tonight. The first is this, by stopping and listening to Jesus. By stopping and listening to Jesus. Notice again what is recorded, Luke 10 verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Notice that this episode starts with a vague reference uh, to the journey. We've noted already in this series that this is part of the travel narrative that runs from chapter 10 through to chapter 19. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and it's going to be a fairly circuitous route. But at this point, they're actually very close because we know from elsewhere in John chapter 11 that Martha and Mary's home is in the village of Bethany. It's just two miles away from the capital city. But more importantly, the focus in this little story is on Christ's reception at the house, isn't it? Did you notice how quickly the disciples fade from view? They're there, they're travelling with Jesus, but it's like they disappear in this encounter because it's all about the different reactions of Mary and Martha to the presence of Jesus in their house. Now, hospitality was a big issue in ancient Israel. It's a big issue today throughout the Middle East still. And so it's unsurprising then that in verse 40, Martha is very busy getting things ready so that they might welcome Jesus, prepare a meal. There's nothing surprising about the effort that is being gone to here on her behalf. But what is surprising is that Mary is not engaged in that with her. Rather, she's sitting at Christ's feet and listening to his teaching, which is not only surprising, but it's a great frustration to Martha And I think it's easy to feel sorry for Martha in this scenario. I think we can look at this and think, well, yeah, you know, Martha's right. Her sister, she's either selfish or she's lazy. Like, why isn't she assisting her? She's just sitting down, relaxing, and she's leaving Martha to do all the work. And no doubt, Martha thought she was on very strong grounds as she went to Jesus and complained and asked him to intervene in the situation. But the biggest surprise, of course, in the encounter is Christ's response to Martha. Notice in the first place, he wants to, her to see that she's worried and upset about many things. I think it indicates to us that she's not really serving with the right heart, the right thought process at this time. And her complaint is very self-oriented. It's all about her feelings and her not getting the help that she wants from her sister. And so she's complaining fairly bitterly. It's very self-oriented language. But Jesus also makes it clear to her that her priorities are wrong, that she's actually wrong. Now, please note, Jesus is not saying that hospitality is bad and that uh, disciples who serve are no good and that sitting around always is to be preferred. Jesus is not saying that at all. But what the underlying point of this section is is that Jesus was the awaited Christ, he is the one through whom God's coming kingdom will be ushered in. He is present with them, the awaited Messiah. And so the focus, the priority should be able to, should be to listen to him, to be able to stop and focus on what he has to share as he comes into their house. And Mary's wanting to drink in Christ's teaching. And Jesus says, look, her choice is not going to be taken away from her. She's chosen the right thing. And there's such a contrast between this story and what we saw last week, isn't there, in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Because remember, that came out of the expert on the law coming up to Jesus and he has no intention to sit and listen to Jesus. He's just coming to test him. He's just coming to poke fun, to try and trip him up with the question. But notice the attitude of Mary here. Here is a genuine disciple of Jesus. Notice her humility The submissiveness of a true disciple. She's sitting at Christ's feet to hear his word. This is the posture of truly listening. She's giving her complete attention to him. And meanwhile, Martha really represents the distraction of our busyness. The fact that so many of us in today's world are so task-oriented, that we're so filled up in our calendar, that we've got to go for two and a half weeks before we can find a gap of 45 minutes... Martha's so caught up in the the importance of what she's doing that she's just unable to stop and listen. You see, it's more important to hear and obey the word of Jesus than to be busy with other matters, even if those other matters are commendable. You see, since the 1960s, we've had this one wave of technological advancement after another, all of which were supposed to make our lives simpler and easier. We're going to have a lot more time. We'd be more relaxed. We'd have space for the most important things in life and yet we have no more free time today than we did decades ago it's probably got worse and in fact the lines between work and home have been blurred haven't they so our employers can send us home with devices so we can keep working after hours or we do that to ourselves and you know we finally finish the chores for the day or If you're married and have children, you've got the kids to bed and then you're back online or doing work again, never stopping. And all this saps our ability to be fully present with those that we love the most. But more than that, there is so much distraction, so much noise that we struggle to hear Jesus. We can't express our dependence on God if we don't hear from him. And to hear from him, we have to read his word regularly. So I guess I want to be direct and blunt now and say, how are you going in your Bible reading? Are you going well at that at the moment? Is that something that you carve out time for, that you give a lot of priority to so that you might hear the voice of God? Is it a daily habit that you prioritize because you know that every word from God is just as necessary for the sustaining of your life as food is? Or is it something you struggle with? Maybe you don't have a regular pattern at all of reading the Bible. Maybe you struggle to read once a week. Perhaps it's once a month. So often we can find it a battle to sit still. We find time to exercise or to pursue our favourite hobby or our sport. We've got lots of time to post things on social media But it can just be so hard to actually sit down and focus on the God of the universe that controls our next breath. And so that, well, that just doesn't happen. But we need it. You so desperately need to hear God speaking to you every day. Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, London Baptist pastor of the 19th century, uh, said to his church one day, you're also good at reading. Some of you devour the local newspaper in one sitting in an hour. And yet, you often fail to read the Bible. The solid, lasting, substantial and satisfying food goes uneaten, locked up in the cupboard of neglect. But you see, he said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book just widens and deepens as the years go on. Uh, current American pastor, John MacArthur, said that his spiritual growth in his life, he always sees as directly proportionate, directly proportionate to the time he spends invested in reading the scriptures. How could it be otherwise? Well, let me encourage you. Let's commit ourselves to listening to Jesus' words, to sitting at his feet, as it were, every day. That's the first way that we can express our dependence on God. We come before him, we listen. But secondly, our second answer to that question of expressing our dependence is this. By putting God in his rightful place. By putting God in his rightful place in our lives. Notice again how chapter 11 starts. Verses 1 to 4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation." It's a model prayer. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. We usually know the longer version in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, but here we have Luke's shorter version of the same one. But it's a model. It outlines the way in which we should proceed in our prayer. It's not meant to be wrote, learnt, perhaps, exactly. It's meant to understand what it's conveying to us. And notice how it begins, by addressing God as Father or Abba. It's a relational term. It's saying that God is intimately involved, interested in the lives of his spiritual children. He's a loving, caring God. And we have this wonderful privilege of having a maker who is not distant and unknowable, but rather is very approachable and personal. The first part of the prayer, notice, too, is concerned with God, with God's name being hallowed in the first instance or revered, that God's name might be honoured. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, to pray in this way is to put God in his rightful place, to acknowledge that he is in charge, that the greatest priority in our life should be to honour his name with the way we live, that our lives should be completely focused on serving God. And of course, this was the struggle for Israel in which they stumbled and stumbled and stumbled throughout the Old Testament where they just failed to honour God's name so much that he would say, you're profaning my name amongst the nations. The nations around you look at you and say, they're God's people? Then their God must be terrible. One example, Ezekiel 36, verse 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. And so Christ's disciples, the very first thing is that they will honour God with their lives. It's just not words, but it's an expression that talks about everything that we will do. He is the one to whom we must give an account. And so we're not to turn to the left or to the right in our lives. We're to honour him with everything we do and say. And it's amazing, isn't it? At times in this world, we give um, very reverent respect to prominent leaders, whether it's um, politicians or... I know community leaders or famous sporting people or celebrities, sometimes the respect is unwarranted, sometimes it is warranted. But we can go to great lengths, can't we, and show respect to people. Whatever respect we might afford a person of prominent position on earth is nothing compared with the awe and reverence with which we must view our Heavenly Father. We owe Him nothing less. And so we must... Hallow his name with our lives and our words. Secondly, the first disciples were to pray for God's kingdom to come. You know, throughout the first few chapters of Luke's gospel, it's a constant theme over and over. And Jesus keeps saying to the people as he goes and preaches in village after village, the kingdom is near, the kingdom is near. And we saw just two weeks ago as we kicked off this series for turn one. The start of chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples and what is the message that he's got for them that they might be announcing so that it's ringing in the ears of all those villages that he'll then follow around? The kingdom is near. Well, when is this kingdom going to arrive, we might ask? How do we pray his kingdom come? What does that mean? Well, God's kingdom would be established when Jesus died and then rose again, when his king was installed when his Christ had been acknowledged as the one who ruled over his kingdom. You see, that's still a future point in the story in Luke chapter 11. God's kingdom would be established when his king was installed. But it wasn't your typical coronation. The world always looks for pomp and pageantry and a big golden throne to stick the king on. But this king was crowned with thorns, and his enthronement was to hang on a cross and bleed and die. Because that is the moment at which he declares himself to be the sacrificial substitute, the promised Messiah who would come, who would lay down his life for the salvation of God's people. His kingdom has come at that point. And so in the first instance, the disciples are praying that moment will arrive. It's still distant at this point, a couple of years down the track. But what happens after Jesus has died and risen again? What does it mean to pray his kingdom come then? Well, it means that we want to see more and more people bow the knee and submit to this king that has been installed, that Jesus might be acknowledged as Lord and Saviour by more and more people because we see his rule in the submission of his people to his word. So as Jesus conquered sin and its wages of death and defeated the devil on the cross, he then rules, having ascended back to heaven at the right hand of the Father, And his rule is seen in his people as they serve him on earth. But of course, the kingdom of God and its coming is also a future event. The full power and glory of God's kingdom won't be consummated until Jesus returns, when the king comes in all his glory and is seen in all his true power. And sin is done away with once and for all. Its marring effects on our world are removed. And then we see Christ as he truly is in all his power. And so to pray this prayer is to be aware of where history is headed. It puts our current lives of suffering and struggle in this world into the right context. It's in the context of eternity because there is one who will come, who will judge, who will rule. And so you notice how the first part of this prayer is vertical. It's all about God, not ourselves. And then there's a shift. There's a shift in verses 3 and 4. And although the shift is on to the needs of the disciples, which we'll consider in a moment, notice that the orientation is always still to God, even as we think about our needs. So have a look at verse 3. What we're acknowledging in verse 3 is our complete dependence on our Heavenly Father for every physical need. Yes, the focus is on our daily bread or our food that we might be fed. It's indicative of the fact that God provides every single thing in our lives. We don't have one thing that doesn't come from his hand. The idea here is God looks after the big things right down to the smallest things. He he provides every single meal for you. A genuine disciple acknowledges that. We're so self-sufficient in our age. We think we do it all. You know, I work hard, I earn money, and so I get the food I need, and I'm I'm providing for myself. (laughs) Rubbish. God's earth provides the food that then allows you to be sustained physically. And he can open his hand or close his hand at any moment. Verse 4. A genuine disciple also acknowledges their sinfulness, their need for forgiveness from God. Throughout Luke's gospel, throughout all the gospels, it's very clear over and over. There's no way that a flawed sinner like you or I can reach a holy God, be in a right relationship with him unless there is a perfect substitute, unless there's someone that can stand in our place. And of course, that's the whole purpose of Jesus coming. His mission is to lay down his life so that we might be freed from the punishment that we deserve for our rejection, our rebellion against God. And so a genuine disciple is praying As they begin in repentance and faith, they continue in repentance and faith. We need to continue to have short accounts with God. And even as we do so, we've got to grasp that the result of that must be that we're ready to forgive others always. There's never exceptions. I can't have the slate wiped clean in my life and then hold a grudge against another person, refuse to forgive them for some sin against me, imagined or otherwise. Impossible. Impossible. And so as we seek God's forgiveness, his ongoing forgiveness through Christ, we forgive others. And finally, there is the request there about temptation. And I think this is a request that's misunderstood because the English translations here don't really help us. As we read this, it sounds like, well, God can tempt us. So we've got to pray and ask him not to tempt us so that he won't lead us into temptation. Now, that's not what it's saying. James 1 tells us elsewhere that God does not tempt anyone Rather, the sentence here has the force of, cause us not to succumb to temptation. See, Jesus is encouraging us to see that we need God's help. We don't only need his physical provision, we need his spiritual protection. And so we've got to recognise our weaknesses. We have to see the ease with which we can give way to the temptations of this world. I'm sure you know the famous hymn, uh, Come Now Fount, Uh, We sing it here sometimes. I think one of the verses captures this idea really well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. This is our struggle. And Jesus says, bring those before God. Ask for God's help in your temptation. This whole prayer here reflects a disciple's total reliance, total dependence on God's physical and spiritual vision, his care whether it's the big picture of God's control over all of history, whether it's our spiritual protection, whether it's just the provision of each and every meal that we enjoy, God's help is absolutely necessary. We can't actually do this life in our own strength, but our society wants to tell us over and over that we've got this. And the Lord's Prayer tells you you haven't, and you need God desperately. You can't save yourself. You can't sustain yourself. You need somebody to help you. Perhaps you saw the 1993 film Alive. It was directed by Frank Marshall, starred a very young Ethan Hawke, um, one of his breakthrough movies, but it's a true story, a story about a plane crash, an incredible survival story. It starts on October 13, 1972, a chartered flight carrying a Uruguayan rugby team Um, mainly Christians, on the flight. Uh, The rugby team plus some family and friends who were going to the match, uh, flying across to Chile. But they didn't make it. They crashed into an unnamed peak in terrible weather in the Argentine Andes. 45 passengers on board Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. 12 died in the crash. Uh, Six died in the few hours and days following from the cold from the injuries they'd sustained in the landing. And the remaining survivors took refuge in the fuselage of the plane, which had been broken into two. But then on October 29, there was an avalanche above them which filled the fuselage up to only a metre to the roof, killing another eight of those who had survived. Uh, There had been... Uh, rescue attempts sent from three surrounding countries because it's on the border, and all of them gave up within a week because they said there was such a minuscule chance of these people surviving. Uh, icy in the middle of winter, blizzards, very little chance in this remote peak that no one could get to. But by December, 16 passengers were still alive, and they sent the two strongest to trek out of there and try and get help. It had started to warm a little. It was a little bit less treacherous to walk. They trekked for 12 days, eventually ran into a Chilean man who then rode his horse for 10 or 12 hours to the nearest person to get rescuers to come. It was such a desolate spot. Now, the, the story in the movie and everything that's been written up, of course, tends to point, as these things always do, to the indomitable human spirit, how amazing that they saved themselves. But they didn't. Uh, Sixteen of them survived because an amazing team of rescuers got there and two of them were strong enough to get help. They needed assistance. They were dependent on others. And the same is true of our need, our need of God. We desperately need his help, both physically and spiritually. And as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we need to pray that prayer and others with persistence. That's what verses 5 to 8 are about that follow. It's all about praying persistently. It's that little parable, the story of the neighbour who goes and knocks on the door at midnight or some late hour asking for bread. Some friend has turned up. He hasn't got any food. Culture of hospitality kicks in, must provide, goes and asks the neighbour for support. Can't get up. It's a one-room house. He's going to wake up the whole family. He gets up and answers the door. They're all in bed. But we're told because of his shameless audacity, the friend will get up and give him everything he wants. And the punchline of all of that for us is persistence, perseverance in prayer. In verses 5 to 8, we're getting our side of the equation in terms of prayer. In the verses that follow, it'll be God's side of the equation. But on our part, we're not to grow impatient, we're to keep praying. I don't know if you can recall times like I can in my own life where you prayed for something, maybe for a couple of days, and then you clean forgot about it. And God may have even answered that prayer a week later and you never even thanked him for it because you'd forgotten and long moved on to other things. Unless it happened in a moment, you were just not going to take it in. We're so impatient. We're so lacking at times in persistence in our prayer life. We're called here to pray, to pray, to pray. And that brings us to a third and final answer to our question. Point three, how can we express our dependence on God? Answer, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Notice again verses 9 to 13. Jesus goes on. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, the sayings about asking, seeking and knocking, the fish and the snake, the egg and the scorpion, all of these point to God's character and his responsiveness to our prayers. And what we see here is that God is trustworthy. If you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake, is the inference. More than that, he is only too willing to answer. It's not like you have to twist his arm. And in fact, he is generous in his response, often giving us more than we need or deserve, only too willing to help and respond. But did you notice that the punchline in verse 13 is about God granting the Holy Spirit? It seems a bit out of place, doesn't it, as we first read it, or at least a sudden gear shift here. We think, well, the focus has been on prayer, and then suddenly the end of the prayer is all about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think as we reflect on this section, we can see that this whole section on prayer is really dependent on this last point. Because perhaps it struck you as we were walking through the Lord's Prayer that no one could actually genuinely pray that prayer and believe it in their own strength without God's help. Who could truly hallow God's name to revere him in all they say and do without God's assistance in doing that. I mean, who could pray his kingdom come to be totally focused on God's rule and his kingdom without his enabling? Who can receive forgiveness from God and extend it to others if they've not been empowered by the Holy Spirit in their life, let alone fight temptation? You see... Surely the people of Israel failed so miserably to honour God and were sent into exile for years and years because they could not do it in their own strength. They could not honour God. They did not revere his name. They maligned his name among the nations. Why would it be any different for those who followed unless something had changed? Let's come back to Ezekiel 36, which I mentioned earlier. God highlighted 600 years before Jesus came what they needed, the missing ingredient. Have a look. Verse 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You see, the missing ingredient for a person to truly obey God, to revere his name with their whole life, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise of Ezekiel 36 was still to be fulfilled in Luke 11. The kingdom had not been ushered in. Pentecost had not taken place as it would at Acts 2 just yet. And so we need to understand the unfolding of God's salvation plan as we read the Lord's Prayer and think about this section on prayer. Without understanding the big picture, it's hard to see how a person could respond rightly. Have you ever been in a situation where you could only see part of the picture, where the rest had not been revealed to you, that had somehow been hidden? Uh, My family and I uh, went down to Canberra in July last year for a holiday in the middle of the year Uh, with our kids, and while we were down in Canberra, I was keen for us to go to the War Memorial. We'd been to Canberra a few times, but we'd never gone to the War Memorial, at least our kids had not. And so we were keen to take them there. I figured it would be a hit, with our boys at least. There's lots of machines, tanks and planes. It's gotta be a winner. And so we went to the War Memorial, but um, as we were planning it one of the mornings after we'd done a few other things and going down there, I was talking to Christine about how much time we'd need to allow and how it would be a few hours, and she seemed very unconvinced, thinking, ''Oh, look, you're only going to need 30 minutes or so.'' And I'm thinking, ''30 minutes?'' And we got down there and started to look around, and we realised then uh, why she had that assumption. She had only gone once as a primary school kid, the usual excursion down on the bus with everyone else. They had taken them to the wall of all the fallen soldiers. They'd walked through that main area outside, seeing some of the guns sitting out on the lawn. But they'd never actually stepped inside the door to see any of the exhibitions. (laughs) Didn't realise there was any more to see. Didn't realise that there was more on offer that could be appreciated. The school had never gone that next step. See, Christians can similarly miss the importance of the gift of the Holy Spirit as they think about their struggling prayer life which is such a key way to express our dependence upon God. See, from Acts 2, every single believer will receive the Holy Spirit the moment they trust in Jesus. But up until that point, of course, it was only the occasional prophet or priest or king that had that privilege that would receive God's help as they sought to lead his people. What a difference the giving of the Spirit means as we consider God's help, as we seek to respond to Him and express our dependence upon Him, which is absolute. The greatest gift that the Father has given is the Spirit, and without Him we're not capable of genuinely praying the Lord's Prayer. You see, in Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, at the end of that prayer, it talks about, God will give good things. His summary and his wrap-up is that uh, God will give good things. He has this very broad category of divine favour. But notice as we get to the end of Luke's version of it, he focused far more narrowly on spiritual enabling, the gift of the Spirit, because it's so needed. As we read the rest of the New Testament, if you're somebody that does struggle to pray and pray consistently, And you think, this is so hard. How can I really grow in my dependence upon God? Well, the key, again, is the work of the Spirit in your life. It's no surprise as we work through the New Testament that again and again the Spirit's role in prayer is spoken of. One example, Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so we have the Holy Spirit to help us, not only to enable us to pray, but to enable us to read his word and understand it and actually to live it, to put into practice in our lives. We so need God's help. And I think in this world of busyness and distraction, as we started tonight thinking, how are we to pause and focus, express our absolute need of God's help moment by moment? Well, we need to be hearing from him. We must read his word. We need to be speaking to him in prayer. But both of those things are going to be just such hard work without God's help. But that is the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what enables us to do these things, to draw closer to God, to grow in our relationship with him because of his indwelling spirit enabling and helping us. I want to put it to you tonight. If you're going to negotiate this fallen world with all its suffering and struggles, with the problems that are going to face you tomorrow morning at work or at uni or wherever, then you need God's help. If you think you're going to do it in your power, then please stop right there. Ask for his help devote yourself to growing in your prayer life in reading God's word knowing that he has given you the resource to help you the gift of his spirit we have everything we need God delights to give what he need what we need to his disciples so won't you pray won't you read won't you trust the work of God's spirit in you let me pray for us now Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God, so faithful and generous to us. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit without whom we could not function properly as your people. We could not pray as we should. We could not hear your voice and respond as you call us to. Lord, help us to see our great need, our desperate need of your assistance every moment and the resources that you've placed in us and in our hands. Help us to take hold of them, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.